we can be so neurotic as parents and do that yeah. hyper parenting where we think we are constructing everything. And, and now more than ever. Now more than ever. I say to people now, it's not helicopter parenting, it's submarine parenting. Yeah. I, We're all in a submarine together. Exactly. You know? We're down at the bottom of the ocean together. I won't name who, because I'm sure he probably doesn't want to be credited with this, but a colleague of mine called it suppository parenting because it's so <laughs> intrusive. God, it's so intrusive. So you know, oh, and it's not so good. You want to know something? Bravo. You just made this whole interview worthwhile. Thank <laughs> you for that. That's so funny. I'm going to quote you. <laughs> I'm Ilaria Baldwin. And I'm Alec Baldwin. And this is our podcast, What's One More? Hey guys, welcome back to What's One More? Today, we are going to talk with Dr. Tina Bryson. She's a psychotherapist and the founder, executive director of the Center for Connection and the Play Strong Institute. She is one of my favorite mamas to follow on Instagram. She is extraordinarily inspiring with her method and just how a very simple approach can get you very far. Our goal with Dr. Bryson is to get her take on how we can grow as parents and do our best to not only communicate better, but realize that our children are struggling just as much as we are. I'll be the first to admit, I've probably yelled more over this past year than I have in all the years combined of all of my children. I normally can keep my cool. You know, I normally, the kids go off to school and I'm at work and I have breaks and they have activities and I get to go see my friends and I get to go see my family. Family. And all of a sudden, we're, you know, under one roof, we're in extremely stressful circumstances all over the world for all sorts of different reasons. And I think that a lot of parents can relate that our fuse is much shorter than it typically would be. So Dr. Bryson is going to help us take responsibility over our words and teach us to also help our kids realize that it's a two-way street and their actions affect us, but it also doesn't give us free reign to lose our cool. I'm looking forward to hearing what Dr. Bryson has to say. I was telling my wife earlier, we were, we're doing five years worth of parenting in a year and a half. <laughs> we have a level of exposure to our kids that yeah, oh, yeah. you only experience over five years time in 18 months. But my, my question for you is, what do you perceive are the benefits? Yeah. Well, first of all, parenting is not supposed to be children under a microscope. Development isn't supposed to be under this kind of a microscope. And I know y'all's kids are young. Um, I have teenagers. My boys are 14, 18, and 21. And especially teenage years are not supposed to be looked at under a microscope. And they're watching us too. But here, here's what I would say, Alec. The research is showing that the way kids fared during the pandemic is pretty much a direct reflection of how well their parents did. So children mirror our states. That's no surprise. But if parents were able to say, gosh, this is a gift. Yes, it's hard. Yes, there are a lot of negative drawbacks. And, you know, obviously when people have food security and job security and haven't lost a lot of family members to death and haven't had those kinds of traumas, it really has been a gift in many ways. And when kids are young, like your kid's age, it is heaven for them. What they need most from you is you. And so when they've had that time to really have your attention and to not have the distractions as much of the outside world, it really is one of the best things for their development. And we've gotten time with our kids. Kids are so overscheduled typically. They typically are way under rested. They don't get enough sleep. So in many ways, having more time to sleep, more time to be together. And for sure, if you have teenagers like I do, family dinners, long, luxurious family dinners, and them spending Friday and Saturday nights with us instead of their friends, not as great for their development, but beautiful for family. And, and 
I think as parents, when we weather stress and difficulty well, it actually provides a huge buffer for our kids. I realized that over this past year, the times where I have lost my temper, where I wouldn't before, had not a lot to do with my kids and a lot more to do with where I was, where my mental state was and how much I was capable of dealing with. Whereas my, I'm just like, my temper's just a little shorter than it usually was. So I'd love for you to talk about why we're doing that. And I'd love for you to talk about, you know, what's happening to our temper right now? What's going on in our brain as as we lose our temper? and, And then- what are uh, options for yeah. losing our temper? Yeah. Well, I think a couple things about the why for parents. The first is our brains hate when things are unpredictable. Unpredictability in the brain is translated as possible potential threat and bad things happening. So, you know, one of the big pieces of this year was the rhythms of our lives went away, right? The rhythms and feels of a day and a week and a month, all of those things went away. And we were constantly flooded with new shifts in how we should do things or not do things, right? So there was constant kind of unpredictability and shifting and that can leave us all on edge. So that's sort of important to know as the backdrop. The other thing is the brain is an association machine. So, you know, if we're grieving, like, oh gosh, you know, not only, of course, the things that are obvious, like someone dying that we know and love, but also grieving like our child's awesome developmental opportunities or or we can't go to our kid's graduation or those kinds of things. Anytime we feel grief or anxiety, the brain makes a connection with any other time in the past we've felt grief or anxiety. So all of that stuff can get activated and be kind of like background music to what's going on. So those are important to know. The other piece of context is that one of the ways I always like to look at parents and one of the ways I always especially like to look at development, especially when someone comes to me and says, hey, is my kid okay, right? I want to always look at what are the demands of the situation and what is the capacity of the person? So what, what we're talking about here is the demands that were placed on parents and what's human capacity were not a match. The demands that were placed on us were so much higher than what our capacity is. And anytime there's a big gap there, especially if it goes on and on, that's where we're going to have reactivity. Now, when we flip our lids as parents, and I certainly, you know, this is what happens to humans. So you can educate yourself. You can read all the books. You can, you know, do your yoga. You can do all those things. But as humans, when we have a threat response, we get our over our emotions take over. This is what happens in our brain. So it happens to me, too. Um, I've shared about a time and we're playing Yahtzee and it's fun family game time, right? And they start fighting. I have three boys. They start fighting. I get mad. They continue to fight. I start getting immature. Eventually I yell and throw the dice across the room now referred to as the Yahtzee incident. You know, these things happen to (laughs) all of us. And here's what happens. The higher structures of our brain, you all are familiar with the prefrontal cortex, Here's what this part of the brain does, or among many things. It helps us regulate our bodies. So it stops you from grabbing your kid's arm and yanking them, right? It helps you regulate your emotions. So you're like, I'm really pissed. I'm super stressed. I'm angry. I feel overwhelmed. And you're able to go, okay, I'm noticing that. I'm going to take a couple of breaths. Um, it allows us to have good judgment and look at all of our options and make good decisions. It allows us to have insight and empathy, like all of these important things. When we have a threat response, so your kid hits one of your other kids, your kid attacks you, you get overwhelmed with your emotions, all of these things can activate it. We actually lose access to our prefrontal cortex. Um, so we call this in our book, uh, in our books, mm-hmm. Flipping Your Lid. Um, and Dan Siegel and Mary Hartzell, who wrote a beautiful book called Parenting from the Inside Out, talk about going down the low road because it really is that we're just operating in the lower structures of our brains, um, like reptiles, right? Or like really, really primitive 
animals. So this is why we lose access to good judgment and empathy and the ability to pause before action. And so that's what happens. Now, I would say, okay, so that's going to happen. What do we do? The key is repair, repair, repair. So in those moments, or after the Yahtzee incident, you know, I say to my guys, oh, I did not handle that well. I'm so sorry that I did it that way. I really wish I had handled that differently. Will you forgive me? Can I have a do-over? And just one quick note, the way we apologize matters. I really want to teach my guys, you are responsible for your own behavior, no matter what anybody else does. So if I apologize where I say, guys, I'm really sorry that happened. If you guys had been listening to me and you hadn't been fighting, that wouldn't have happened. That is totally teaching them the opposite of what I want them Mm. to do. So what I want to say in that moment is I got mad. And I can even say you weren't listening. You were fighting. I felt angry, but I'm not blaming them. I'm saying that's what was happening for me. There's no because in there. There's no because in there. That's exactly right. So the key then is to make the repair. Well, I think it's interesting that that for us, you know, we're not the only ones on the planet, so to speak, but we do have a unique situation where we do have six kids. Yes. We have two very young children. We have a very young uh, boy and girl, they're yeah. infants. And we have, we call them the boys, even though there's four boys, the boys, uh, Los Tres Amigos, the three uh, <laughs> number of the boys, numbers one, two, and three, they're a gang. They're a gang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're a marauding uh, very active. And, 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 and that's the thing for me is as a father, you know, I'm a punching bag to them. I'm a tackling dummy to them. <laughs> My son the other day, Romeo stood there and he'd been eating and he had a fork in his hand. Oh God. And he's very short. So he's at right at that height. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he looks at me and he stares at me for a moment, very, very predatory. And then he takes the fork <laughs> and stabs me in the you know what oh, with the Lord. fork. Uh, yeah. What advice do you have for fathers yeah. who are dealing with sons, not even teenagers, because teenagers, it's a whole other set whole of circumstances. Other, yeah, that's and, a other episode. And socializing and everything and their friends and other dangers and so forth. But with little kids, if you're home with little kids, what what advice do you have for fathers for uh diffusing because my yeah. the three boys the three amigos but, but not man just they the can boys. tear it up diffusing with girls too but the boys yeah. get very physical and yeah. the boys really really they want to tear it up at least at one moment during the day what's your advice to fathers handling their aggressive children well what i would say is actually that rough and tumble play the wrestling the punching the rolling all of that is actually super great for their development Actually, there's research that shows that that kind of rough and tumble play, especially with an adult that has more coordinated body movements that knows when to pause and shift, actually helps them become better dancers, better lovers, like learning how to move their body in time with other bodies. So it's really, really good for them. However, you can hold boundaries if you're like, I'm done or that's too much. It's so good for them to have you set the boundary and the limit and say, this is fun, but that was too much. So you kind of rein them in with just those redirections and you say, if it gets to this point, we have to take a break. So you're giving them that feedback in the moment. You know what my fault is? My Among my your principal one. faults. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, right, well, one. my No, no. My, I'm the first person <laughs> to lay the cards on the table that among my handful of principal faults is that I make the mistake of I, I facilitate, I facilitate, I encourage, we yeah. play, we get aggressive. Then I say, stop. You don't give yeah. a warning. Yeah. Right. Then I just said that I'm like enough, and and they're confused because to them they only have they only have a forward gear, gas pedal, and no to get break. them to slow yeah. down. Right. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, here's what I would say. I think one big mistake a lot of us make is that we wait too long to set the boundary. 
Like uh-huh. we're, it's starting to not go so well, and but we kind of keep tolerating it, tolerating it until we're done. See, after they poke my eye out, I set the boundary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So sometimes if you're like, okay, this is getting too much, to set the boundary earlier. Like sometimes our kids, like they nag at us. They're like, I really want this. I really want this. And eventually we, we might go, okay, fine. But we the reason we said no in the first place is because we know it's going to make a mess that we're not going to handle very well. And then they make the mess and then we get mad at them. So sometimes we just need to give a hard no and set the boundary earlier before it gets to that place. But I would mm-hmm. also say, you know, yes, if you can... It, if you can set ground rules, sit the guys down and say, okay, guys, let's make some rules together. Okay. What do you think should be the rules about making sure everybody's body is safe while we're playing rough and tumble? And you can say face is off limits. You cannot do anything to people's faces, right? And if that happens, we're going to have to stop the play. So you're giving them that warning ahead of time. Okay, great. We were at in a difficult place in our life. And this is what happens to our animal brain when this happens. What can we do about it? How can we get them to listen better? How can we get them to be more peaceful? Yeah. And 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 because if we have actual tools that hopefully as we notice our blood is starting to boil and it's yeah. been 13 times that I've asked them to do it and they haven't still done it. You know, what are what are techniques that I can do that's going to help them get through the situation? Because the other fear that we have is that we're going to raise kids who don't do things and and hurt people and like all the kids yeah. behavior that they don't actually grow out of those phases. Yeah, that's yeah. like a terrible fear. Here's the answer to a lot of the, these questions about how how do we get them to cooperate? How do I not have to say it 75 times? And how do we prevent these things from happening? Set them up for success. Play and playfulness is one of our best tools. So Alec, in the moment you can say, okay, who's going to be the ref? And so someone gets to be the ref, right? And so that's fun and playful. Hmm. And you say, okay, ref, what are the rules? Remind us, what are the rules? Okay. Yeah. No faces. Okay. And then if somebody punches you or pokes you in the eye, you got to say, oh, ref, you know, if the ref jumps in, you know, whatever. And they're going to love that power and control, right? Um, and then the you other- You something? That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's thank brilliant. you. Well, play in playfulness. Put them in charge. Yeah. Put them in charge. And, and that's what I would say, too, about Carmen and her homework. And this is huge because think about this. You have, the, your kids are, what, seven and under now, right? Are they mm-hmm. all seven yes. and under? Okay. So you only, and Carmen's the closest to, yes. she's the oldest, right? So you've only got, so you're, if you're on a freeway, I, I'm in LA, so you all excuse my freeway analogies. You're on the freeway. You only have so many exits until they are on their own, right? So our job between now and then, everything about discipline, everything we're doing is to help them become self-disciplined people who can handle the world well, right? Well, if we do everything for them and tell them everything, they don't develop what's called agency or self-determination. And self-determination is really about knowing and having confidence that you can navigate what happens in the world and having them a sense of say in their lives. And this is even more important for the pandemic because so much independence has been taken away from them. People are talking about academic slippage, social and developmental slippage. I'm most concerned about having lost opportunities for autonomy. When you drop Carmen off at school in the morning, between then and when you pick her up, do you know how much independence and autonomy and problem solving she has to do? It's tons, right? So in those moments, what we really want to be doing, and this is a really helpful tool for our teenagers or whatever age, is to say, Carmen, I know you know your homework needs to get done. We're having dinner in two hours. What's your plan? And you allow her to have a say in it, right? And so, and I, I do that with my teenagers. Hey, I know you know it's important to get a good night's sleep. I'm noticing how late it is. What's your plan? That's so much better than saying, go to bed. It's so much better than right. commanding. That's the issue with Carmen, who has the adult identified older child and a female, because I found that the female child is much more. They're more mature earlier. More much more mature yeah. earlier. Carmen's like, I mean, Carmen wants to sit in bed with us. And have a martini and watch Jimmy <laughs> Fallon at 1130. She is so ahead so of her. Fun. And, and And trying to, to discipline her, 
with love and, and yeah. because she wants to go everywhere her mother goes. She wants yeah. to do everything her mother does. If her mother and I go do something, she's like, you're taking him and not me. Don't you? We know you'd rather be with me than him. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like that because I think I think incorporating her into the problem solving. Yeah. What's your plan? Asking her. is like, well, what's your plan? And sometimes that works. And there's there are things that have amazed me in terms of the, the, the kids' ability, and I hear this from my friends as well, the kids' ability to take on things that we, they couldn't before. I mean, not just living in more solitude, but also their, uh, their you know, she she's like, okay, I have class at this time, then this time, then this time. She gets like on her yeah. Zoom things and she like knows how to do it. Stuff that I would not be able to do at her age. Yeah. And you just look back at this past year and think like, oh my gosh. But I do, I do like that. I mean, the more I find... A lot of it so much is just a process and a phase and it's having conversations through the phase and you feel like it's never going to change. And then all of a sudden it does. It does. Well, and that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, yes, we want to be intentional as parents and what we do matters. Absolutely. Tons of research to back us up on that. And we can rest in the assurance that as development unfolds, as our kids' brains develop naturally, they're going to get better at all of these things, even right. without us doing anything. You know, and Alec, you're talking about your boys, like they're better at kind of not being so impulsive in the rough and tumble play. They're they're better at it than they were a year ago. And so I think that's a big piece of they it too, are. is we can be so neurotic as parents and do that yeah. hyper parenting where we think we are constructing everything. And, and now more than ever. Now more than ever. I say to people now, it's not helicopter parenting, it's submarine parenting. Parenting. Yeah, I, we're all in a submarine together. Exactly. You know I mean? We're down at the bottom of the ocean together. I won't name who because I'm sure he probably doesn't want to be credited with this. But a colleague of mine called it suppository parenting because it's so <laughs> intrusive. God, it's so intrusive. So funny. You know? oh, and it's not so good. You want to know something? Bravo. You just made this whole interview worthwhile. Thank <laughs> that's you for that. so funny. I'm, I'm going to quote you. I'm going to quote you. It's not good for our kids. It's really not. You know, the right. way we develop resilience is by walking through difficult situations and sitting in difficult emotions with enough support. If our lives are completely constructed by every little, you know, it's or like curling parenting where you, you sweep the ice so your little angel has no little bumps in the road, that's not good for them. It's It actually undermines resilience and makes them fragile. I want to go back, Alaria, to what you were saying about like, what do we do in the moment? Like they're, you know, they're making each other bleed and you can't get them to cooperate. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the reasons they listen when you yell or when you make a threat is um, because the brain pays more attention to novelty. So when you become unpredictable, you're not typically like that. You yell, you're, you know, immature, whatever. They go, oh, wow, this doesn't feel very good. This feels like mm -hmm. not so great. And I know she's going to come make things right in a moment. And when we do that, we actually make our kids more relationally resilient because they learn how to tolerate the messiness and discomfort of conflict in a relationship, knowing it can be made right again. So that when they have fights with their friends, they're like, oh, it doesn't mean the relationship's over and those kinds of things. So as long as we repair, those ruptures are good for our kids. Now, when you're trying to get them to do something, okay, so like you and I talked yesterday and you were saying like, I know I shouldn't be like threatening to take away the toys or like sending them away from me when they're upset. But what I want to say is, first of all, discipline is all about raising kids who become self-disciplined. And that requires teaching and skill building and waiting for brain development. So that, that part you're just waiting on. But the other part is about how you use discipline moments to teach and build skills so they can do better the next time. Now, in the moment, it's not so much what you do as much as how you do it. Okay, so let's take two different paths. The toy is getting taken away in either path. 
Okay. One option or one path is fine. I'm taking the toy away. I'm breaking the toy. I'm throwing it away. Like I I told you yesterday about a friend of mine, whose mom, they were on a road trip and she reached into the back seat, grabbed a toy and threw it out the window on the road trip. Right. Like, so we all can have these like moments where we just lose it. So you're like, I'm taking the toy away. No one can ever play with the toy and you're yelling. Okay. That's one Mm -hmm. path. The other path is to say, I'm noticing you guys are having a hard time navigating how to work out with this toy. So I'm going to, I'm going to hang on to the toy for a little bit. The toy is going to be paused for a little bit. See if you guys can come up with a plan to play with the toy together and let me know when you have a plan. You know, in both situations, you're putting a pause on what's happening. But in the second scenario, you're actually giving them good brain work and having them have practice learning how to work with each other and those kinds of things. And same thing with sending them away from you, as you know, from my work. I really believe based on over 50 years of cross-cultural research that when kids are at their worst, that is when they need us the most. So if your kid's having a total meltdown and they're being violent, you know, that's actually when they most need connection. The part of the brain that lights up when they're physically hurt is the same part of the brain that lights up when they're emotionally hurt. So just like when they have a scraped knee and you go to them with nurture and care and comfort, that's what we want to do when they're emotionally in distress, which sometimes looks like disrespectful behavior, acting out towards siblings. This does not mean we say yes to the behavior or we allow behaviors. Kids have to have boundaries and limits and structure. We know that from the research too, but we can set limits with empathy. So we can say, everyone's body has to feel safe. You cannot hurt your brother. Come over here. And why don't we take a minute? Let's calm our bodies down. Can I help? Or I'm here with you while you're feeling this anger, right? It's so powerful because you're stopping the behavior but you're also offering connection. So you're saying no to the behavior while saying yes to your child, to their connection. And I think, you know, in these discipline moments, yes, we're teaching them about behavior. It's not okay to hurt somebody else's body. Our kids' behavior communicates to us the areas they, they need skill building. So if I asked you to make a list of all the discipline issues that are the drive you the most crazy, that worry you the most, that list is not called discipline problems. That list is skills my child is learning. And so it's a totally different framework. Okay, so you say, you know what? That wasn't okay. You wait till they're calm. um, And then you say, what could you do differently next time? And, you know, you really hurt your brother and you pause and you let them sit in the discomfort of that healthy conscience of, yeah, I really did hurt my brother. And you ask them, how can you make it right? So after all of that, what's so important too is you're not just teaching about the behavior. You're also teaching them about their relationship with you. So what I mean by that is, If our kid tells us something or has a a behavior that's not great and we become really critical of them, their brain is like, boy, that didn't feel very good to share how I felt with my parent. That's not such a good idea. Maybe I won't do that. Or if we say to our kids, I don't want to hear it or go to your room and you can come out when you're nice again. What we're actually communicating to our kids, they internalize, which means I'm only interested in being in relationship with you when you've got it all together and I don't want to hear it. So when you're having a hard time, you keep it to yourself. And those are, of course, not the messages we mean to give them. But those discipline moments not only teach them about the behavior, but the way we handle it, you know, the how matters even maybe more than what we're actually doing. Right. No, that that makes that makes so much sense. Tell us about the power of showing up and and the four S's. Yeah. So one of the most important things we can do for our kids is actually incredibly freeing for us as parents. And that is we can mess up all the time as parents. We can be flawed. We can make mistakes. We can be, you know, um, 
missing things, all of these things. The most important thing based on decades and decades of research is that kids know that we're going to show up for them. So what that means, and Dan Siegel and I wrote about this in The Power of Showing Up, is that the best predictor for how well kids turn out is that they have what's called secure attachment with their parents. Totally different from attachment parenting. I'm not talking about attachment parenting. This is developmental um, psychology research that's totally different. And what that means is that when our kids are having a hard time, especially, we want our kids all the time, but especially when they're in distress, to feel the four S's, feeling safe which means when we make mistakes and yell and those kinds of things, we also make the repair. Seen, that's where we tune into the mind behind their behavior. And we say, oh, you're so mad. You have to get out of the bathtub. You really don't want to get out as you lift them out. So you're still holding the boundary, but you're really tuning into their internal experience. So they feel known and understood. Soothed, that's when you show up with nurture, with comfort, say, I will help you. I'm here with you. And I'll say one other thing about that before I move on to the the fourth S. I used to spend so much cognitive, attentional, emotional energy in moments when my kids were freaking out, being difficult cult, you know, kicking and screaming because they were mad about their big brother being able to stay up later, whatever it was in the moment. What I learned is that all I have to do is show up in that moment with my presence. So what that looks like is to say, you're so disappointed that you're not getting to stay up. It feels really unfair, doesn't it? So I'm just really connecting with the emotions with empathy while I'm holding my boundary. And then I say, I'm right here with you while you're upset. And that is it. I'm just saying, I can handle your big feelings and I trust that you can handle your big feelings. And we just help them. And you don't have to fix it because that's what the stressful thing is. And you don't have to distract. And the fourth is secure. And that really means that when you have repeated experiences throughout childhood where you feel safe and seen and soothed enough, not perfectly, you develop security, which means you trust your brain has wired to know that when you have a need, someone's going to show up for you. And even better than that, you actually learn that you can show up for yourself that you can help yourself be safe and seen and soothed. And so it's it's really the most important thing. And the research shows that even the most attuned parents who show up for their kids are really only doing it about 30% of the time. So it gives us a ton of leeway and freedom to not be perfect, but to just be present and show up. Now that, that definitely makes me feel a little bit better about myself. So what's like one takeaway that you want us, like a quick little sentence or two that you want people to take away from this? One is when we mess up as parents and we look back with regret, if you have moments as a parent that you look back on and go, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Or I I wish I had known this. And we have pangs of regret. um, That's actually a really great thing because if you don't have that feeling, it means you're not growing, you're not learning, you're not evolving, you're not reflecting. So that's great. When you have that feeling, just know, good, I'm evolving, I'm growing, I'm changing. That's great. The other thing I would say that's a great takeaway is that kids can only learn when they are in a calm, regulated state. And we can only be effective teachers when we are in a calm and regulated state. So what I'm saying here is give yourself permission to slow things down. And when your kid's having a hard time acting out, Take the time to calm them down or let them get calm before you address the behavior. It's so much more effective in teaching. Make sure you're calm too. So we can ask, is my kid ready to learn? And am I ready to teach? And if the answer is no to either one of those, start with getting calm first and then go to the teaching. Because it will only piss you off even more. It won't work either. not getting it. It It does not work. All right, what's one more? One more is one more family dinner. It has been luxurious to have my teenagers. And, you know, they're taking ethics classes and they're fascinating. Um, When they're younger, they're hilarious and, and are so much fun. And when they're older, they're hilarious too. In fact, Alec, my 18-year-old Luke 
since I heard I was coming on your podcast, he's been saying Alex Baldwin as many times as he can to get to mess with me and so that I would mess up your name sometime in the podcast, right? He thought that would be really funny. So every family dinner, he says your name about 18 times wrong. Um, so more family dinners. I can't get enough of them. So when I do Jimmy Fallon next, I'm going to talk about how I did the podcast with my wife when we interviewed you. And of course, I'm going to say he's your least favorite of your three Okay, children. perfect. He'll love that. I'm gonna, I'm, he'll be damaged for life, but I'm going to say on Fallon that, that he's the least favorite oh, of three. You told me that. You told me that off mic. Yeah, off mic. Of course, off mic. Well, he's a big fan. He'll love it. Well, my best so to your cute. children. Well, listen, Yours thank too. you so much. You, thank you are, you, so you much. are a force. You are a force. Aww, so informative. Thank you. I really loved that conversation, and especially when she said, when they're interacting in a kind of aggressive way, you make one of them the referee. I love that, and and you and you teach them uh, responsibility by making them assume the role that you would play. And I think also just taking responsibility that we are the parents. We it is our job to parent them in in ways where we are giving in a calm way in a firm way it doesn't mean that we don't have our boundaries and we don't have our rules but that we do it in a kind and compassionate way that is very much age appropriate thanks for joining us we'll talk to you guys next week where our kids will be in vegas playing the slots make sure to rate review and follow the show on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with your friends and help us grow we'll talk to you guys next week